Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we're wrapping up this chapter now after many, many weeks studying it. It began all the way back in chapter 8, verse 1, with those eternal words, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then Paul goes on to basically unpack what it means for there to be no condemnation. And as he goes through this amazing argument from the beginning of Romans 8 all the way till the end, he ties it all up at the end, his uh, finishing statements, if you were. He's resting his case here in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. They're probably some of the most famous and well-known verses in all of the Bible. Uh, They are the nourishment to the souls of millions of believers who are facing trial and tribulation. Uh, They are the um, enlightening and illuminating truths that help you see through the darkness of circumstances and trials and even persecution. And I would argue that they are going to be words that will become increasingly more meaningful going forward for the Christian church as the world becomes increasingly hostile against her. These are not words merely looking back on something that Paul said about his own situation, but words that are meant to strengthen you in light of what's to come. It's a forward-looking section of Scripture. Now, we took the last few verses of this, and I said we would take three weeks to do that. The first week, we looked at the fact that there is now, therefore, no charge brought against us, meaning there's no accusation. Nothing is going to come in front of the throne of heaven that is going to put you at risk of losing your salvation. That as wicked as you may remain in terms of your behavior, there is no charge that will be brought against you in the court of heaven that has any chance of standing. In fact, every single time your accuser, the devil, the evil one, brings up your sin before a holy God, it is immediately tossed out of court because the Son of God, who came to pay for those sin, said everything has been charged off against that believer to my account, past, present, future. There is now nothing that can condemn them. He stands in your place. And I hope you understand that you serve a risen, glorified Christ who is a champion. He is the risen Christ, the glorified Christ, the ascended Christ, the Christ who's going to come back to rule and reign and to wipe out his enemies with nothing but the voice that would cause him to be incinerated, the sword from his mouth, as it were. He is not reflected in the book of Revelation the same way that he is in the Gospels. Remember, the incarnation was Christ at his most humiliated, coming in the form of this helpless baby, and then he is raised up, as the Bible says, and he grows in wisdom and knowledge and in favor with God and man, to the point where he completes the mission that he came for by dying on the cross. The cross was the high point of the incarnation, not the low point, because that was where he said, it is finished, and then proved that it was three days later, raised from the dead, and then ascended now to rule and reign, and as Philippians 2 says, he will come back, but he will come back in glory. That is the the risen Savior that you serve. There is no accusation that will stand. Secondly, there was no condemnation that will stand. And condemnation, remember, was the uh, concept of punishment. Uh, Verses 31 and 32, the charges. Verses 33 and 34, the punishment. 
Condemnation is not merely how we condemn somebody and judge them. Because we're all by nature judgmental, right? It's not just being judgmental. Uh, I was reminded of that just this week, actually, how judgmental I am. I have a judgmental heart. I have a heart that's just, just judgmental. I just, I, I judge people. I, in fact, it was I, this week and last week, too, come to think of it. In fact, the week before, me and Stephen Landers were grabbing coffee. And we were sitting there and we were watching this person try to parallel park. And they parallel parked by bumping into the car that was behind them. And forward, back again, and back again. We're sitting there, we're watching this happen. We're like, is this really happening? And immediately we're judging them because you know what we're thinking? We're thinking, I wonder what that person is like. Because when they get out of the car, right, we're going to be like, oh, yeah, <laughs> makes sense. And, and Steve, I'm, I'm going I'm to call him out. Steven's like, I wonder what she looks like. And I said, I, I, I said how do you know it's a her? driving into baccalaureate here, which was a couple of days ago, and I'm, and I'm driving in the fast lane, which is where you're supposed to drive fast, and this person in front of me had not been given the memo during driving school, and they were going so slow, and so I did what every godly person does, and I tailgate really, really close <laughs> to tell them to hurry up, and I look down, and, and again, I look down at the license plate, New Hampshire, and, 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 and this is why, I hope none of you are from New Hampshire, but I, and you know what I thought? Ha, pff, New Hampshire. Why? I've got nothing against New Hampshire. I'm thinking, why do you drive that slow? You can drive across the whole state in half an hour. Maybe that's why. But here in California, we've got to get places. Why, why the judgmental spirit? That, that's, that's something we just got to pray about. And I'm going to confess, I need to pray about it for myself too. But listen, that's not what Paul had mentioned last week. Remember, he was talking about the actual condemnation, the actual judgment, the actual punishment. And, and what's so amazing to me is that Christ not only pleads my case saying the charges won't stick, but he says, I've already paid the penalty. The reason the charges can't stick is not because the charges aren't true. It's because they are true, but he's paid for them. He doesn't treat you as if you've never sinned. Don't Believe that. He does treat you as if you have sinned and are deserving of hell forever, but sent his son to pay for it so you don't have to. So that when the sword comes down, as it rightfully should to me, to kill me for my sin, that's when he says, look at these wounds. They've paid it already. He was crushed so that I don't have to be crushed. So the charges are thrown out because they've already been paid for. And so there's no charge and there's no condemnation. But there's also one more thing, and we're going to look at that this morning in verses 35 through 39, and, and that is there's no separation. There's no accusation, there's no condemnation. Number three, there is no separation. Open your Bibles to Romans 8. We're going to begin this morning, verse 35. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 35. Here, Paul begins by asking a question. He says, who, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
And that begins the first of just three simple points that I want to make this morning. Three words. First word is focus. The second word is facts. And the third word is faith. Just a simple way of remembering this section of scripture as we break it down. The first word is our focus. Second word is just the facts we're going to look at as outlined for us. And then the last one is our, our faith. Begins here with the focus by asking the question, who? And I, and, I, and I paused there when I read that because it looks as if he's going to then follow up with, the, with, with what can separate us, not who. But there's always a who behind the what. So when he says who can separate us, he is ultimately directing the question not to circumstances, but to the power brokers behind the circumstances. Who are the people? Who are the beings? Who are the forces that could possibly separate us from God? There is nothing worse than being separated from God. Hell is separation from God. And so he says, who then is going to separate us? Us being the believers, us being those who are in Christ, us who have no condemnation, us who have no accusation that can stand. Who can separate us? That's the first point, the focus. Now he's going to answer it by a bunch of negatives that cannot. And these are just the facts, if you will, the facts. Now these are all pretty familiar to you. It begins with usually a word that is translated in your Bibles as tribulation. And tribulation and the next word distress often go together. Now this is not talking about tribulation, capital T, the tribulation. Uh, there's a lot of debate as to exactly what the believer's relationship will be to the tribulation. Will they go into the tribulation? Will they stay in the tribulation? Will they go through the tribulation? Uh, there are a lot of different perspectives on exactly how to understand that, and I think if it was meant to be absolutely crystal clear in Scripture, God would have made it absolutely crystal clear in Scripture. But that isn't even really the focus of our conversation this morning. The focus of our conversation this morning is that tribulation and distress are things that all believers should expect to go through on one level or another. You can't escape it. Even if you hold the view that we're going to escape the real big tribulation, you're not going to escape the everyday tribulation of living in a fallen world. And tribulation and distress, they go together. They're words that mean to be pressed down, like something heavy is upon you. And the word distress means to go into something narrow. So imagine you're being pressed down from above and you're being crushed from the sides. I know some of you like to go camping, some of you like to go visit the state parks. Most recently, several of you have gone to, I believe it was Zion, and you went through the Narrows. Is that what it called, John? Yeah, the Narrows. Catherine and our boys went through there as well. So you actually will get into a vehicle, you drive, you get up early in the morning, you get on a shuttle, you go to this place so that you can walk through a very, very narrow passageway through tall mountains. And it's very, very narrow. It's called the Narrows. In fact, even the slightest earthquake would cause them to squish together. And every, no, I don't know if that would really happen. Don't worry. <laughs> but you can't go there in a huge group. It forces you in to a narrow space. And if you're claustrophobic, you don't like that because you don't have a big open vistas to look at. The idea here of tribulation, distress, pressing down, crushing in. Imagine the tightest place you've ever been. It's that kind of thing that fills the human heart sometimes with fear. And then I believe the next ones are all basically put together. You've got persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword. 
And, and those are all words that come out in the rest of the scriptures often together. Uh, the idea there of persecution is of being pursued, being chased. That your enemies are at your heels and they're chasing you. From that kind of persecution, you can imagine where famine would come in. That just means to be in want. It means to lack the resources, lack of food, lack of water. From famine, you get to nakedness. Nakedness talks about exposure, exposure to the elements, not having enough to cover yourself. The shame of exposure. So the persecution involves being hungry. The persecution involves being exposed. The persecution involves being in danger as well. The word danger there is meaning all kinds of of danger, and especially the kind of danger that you don't know is coming. It's like living in a perpetual state of fear, that danger is going to overtake you, and then finally sword. That word sword is used in the Bible figuratively to talk about dividing. Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace, I came to bring a sword. He meant he was going to divide people on either side of truth. It's also used in Romans 13 of the government that is able to bear the sword. What does that mean? It means to take human life. That the government has been entrusted with God by God with the ability to take human life. And Paul says, look, you could be in a situation where because you're a Christian, you're going to face the danger of the sword, even the sword of the government, which could come for you and take your life. I don't think I have to tell you all. It's not going to get easier for us going forward. It's not going to get easier. It hasn't been easier for Christians in the past. I, I, I read the account of an event that happened back in 1550, and it was a letter that was written from somebody who was loyal to the Roman Catholic Church back to somebody in the hierarchy of the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, and they were celebrating the fact that they were able to kill all of these reformers at one time. And they moved all of these people who were following the Reformation that happened to recover the gospel from the complete blackness that had surrounded it by the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church, and they herded them together into a barn, 88 of them, and they came in at one at a time, they blindfolded those reformers, took them outside, and with a butcher knife, slit their throat, and came back in carrying the bloody knife and the blindfold, and did it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, to 88 reformers. And then, quartered them, as if they were just butchered animals, loaded them on a cart, and hung the pieces out for everybody to see what they would do for anybody who would defy the Pope in Rome. That was 1550. One of the brothers in the church gave me an article last week. It was on my desk when I came in there after church, and it was about what's going on right now in the church in China. And I've had some experience with that, been there several times. I know some of the persecution that they're going through. Believe me, they're not thinking, well, things are just going to get better from here. They know it's going to get worse. They're going to be pursued. It's going to get worse for us here too. I just feel like I have to tell you that. Just as your shepherd, as someone who loves you, it's going to get worse. Prepare for it now. You're not going to be able to escape it like by moving to Texas. Okay? It's going to happen. No country, no government has ever remained in a state of accepting of the gospel and of Christians. They will turn on us eventually. So (laughs) I'm not here to just paint a bleak, dour picture for you. I just want to make sure you're strengthened and ready and mature so that not if it comes, but when it comes, you're able to stand. 
And to never doubt the fact that when the persecution comes, that it has somehow separated you from God's love, that he does this to you because he does not love you. That is what Paul wants to make crystal clear to us. Our happiness, our easy circumstances are not an indication of his love. It's a blessing of his love, but that doesn't mean he loves you. He loves you because he's chosen to love you. He has set his love upon you. And your circumstances are irrelevant. What matters is his choice. And so in order to make it clear that they should expect it, look at verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Just like those reformers, dragged out, slaughtered, butchered. He says, this is what it's like. And he goes back and he reaches into Psalm 44 and he pulls out the language of Psalm 44. I don't believe that the author was necessarily looking forward to what believers were going to face. I don't think they had some prophetic vision. In fact, the psalm was written of people in that day. And the you there, for you we are being slaughtered, that's for God himself. These are followers of Yahweh, part of the covenant community. And they're saying, we're being slaughtered because of our relationship to you all the day long. Just because God loves his people doesn't mean that he has always and in every situation rescued them from destruction. In fact, sometimes he ordains it. But it never is meant to question his love. There's more. In fact, we get into probably the most famous section where he says in verse 37 and following, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 37. We are more than conquerors. And, and I don't particularly like the way they translated it there. They use the word no in my ESV. But it's actually that word, that conjunction in the Greek language, but. But it's the strongest possible contrast. He is saying the exact opposite of everything that you think about when you think of persecution. The exact opposite. Even though you are the one who is killed, you're the one who is hungry, you're the one who's naked, you're the one who is in danger, you're the one who's persecuted, you face the weight of the tribulation and the crushing of the distress, even though everyone looks at you and says you're the failure, you're the loser, you're the one who, who lost, he says you're more than conquerors. Those who gave their lives as martyrs are more than conquerors. It's a word that in the original is constructed from two Greek words. The first one is hyper, where we get our English word hyper from, like hyperactive. And then the other word is nikeo or nike, victory. You are hyper victorious. Translators don't even know what to do with the word. They, 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 they kind of have to come up with something new to explain it. You're, you're hyper victorious. In the midst of your affliction, in the midst of your distress, in everything being taken from you, humiliated and killed, you are hyper-victorious. Now that does not make sense. If we look at this based on just earthly economy, that doesn't make sense. That can't be true. It can't be true unless there is a truth greater than the truth you can see. And that's what Paul wants to encourage you with. That's what proves that you understand that God's love is beyond anything that we can truly appreciate in this world because this world could take away everything from us except his love and it will be secure for you forever. So in all things you are more 
then victorious. And then, of course, the famous ending. We're still in that section of the facts. These are just the truths. For I am convinced. And that's what I like to translate it as. I am convinced. I'm not just sure. I don't just know. I haven't just uh, landed here until I can be convinced otherwise. No, I am absolutely convinced all of the evidence is in. The verdict is read. You cannot change me. I am literally unteachable on this subject. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if Christians these days were a little bit more resolute in believing what they believe and not being open to reinterpreting every doctrine just because someone says you should? I mean, there are times where people come in here and they want to argue with me about something that is an absolutely foundational truth, one of the solas of the Reformation, one of the doctrines of grace, and I tell them, my friend, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but to put it bluntly, I'm simply unteachable on this matter. Like, I, am, I admit it, I am unteachable. It is going to be a hopeless effort on your part. I cannot be changed. I am utterly convinced. So let's just spare ourselves a lot of time and trouble and hassle and just acknowledge it's not going to help. Nothing's going to change my mind about it. That's Paul's attitude towards these things. What are they? Well, they come in pairs and then a few little extras inserted. So follow along. First of all, number one, I am convinced that neither death nor life. That's the first thing. Neither death nor life. Death, of course, is something that believers are not afraid of because death is merely the method by which we move from this feudal life and into the life that God has promised us in Christ. He's not afraid of death. Death can't separate me from the love of God. Death is the vehicle that takes me into the very love of God. Death shouldn't bother me. Death, death should be the last thing Christians fear. Death is the last and greatest gift that he gives us rescuing us from the one vestige of our corruption that remains, which is our mortal bodies. That's why he said earlier in Romans chapter 8, we are groaning, we are waiting for the redemption, not of our souls, because that's already happened, the redemption of our bodies. We want new bodies. These old ones. Like, we're ready. Because they're corrupt. Because they're sinful. Because they're judgmental. Because out of nowhere, they say, and they think terrible things about people from New Hampshire. I mean, these bodies are still fallen, and they need to be redeemed and rescued. Death is what does that. What about life? He says, I'm not afraid of life, and all life brings. Life is a perpetual unfolding of uncertainty, isn't it? Every single day, you wake up to new uncertainties. Isn't that a pleasant thought? <laughs> Thanks, Pastor. Oh. Write that on a mug. But it's true, isn't it? Every morning you wake up to a new basket of uncertainties. No idea. You're going to go to bed tonight and you could think about all the things that happened today and said, oh yeah, here are all the unexpected events that happened. And Paul says that's just life. It's the stuff of life. And it's not going to separate you from God's love. Neither death nor life. Nor angels nor principalities. That's the second one, second pair, neither angels nor principalities. I believe what he's saying here is that you're looking at two different kinds of rulers. The word angel there, um, it's used of good angels and bad angels. It's used of messengers. Um, it's, it's more the, uh, the angelic hosts, the supernatural world. None of that can separate you from God's love. There's no angel powerful enough to separate you from the love of God, even if that angel is the devil. 
Even if that angel was the highest ranking angel in heaven and was so powerful and so glorious that he was able to deceive one third of the other holy angels into following him in rebellion. Even that angel cannot separate you from the love of God. And neither can principalities or rulers, your translation might say. Those are more the human authorities, the ones that are at work in this world, the ones you can see, the ones that can put you in prison, the ones that can make laws that make it impossible for us to gather as a church. The ones who are able even to bear the sword, even when they bear that sword in an immoral way. Not death, not life, not angels, not principalities. Nor things present, nor things to come. Those are the next two. Nor things present, nor things to come. Uh, There is nothing presently in front of you that you're dealing with day in and day out, nor anything down the road that will come to you that can separate you from God's love. So now he's extending this for time. Obviously nothing in the past has because he loves you. He's saying nothing now can and nothing in the future can. So just don't think that all these promises I just made for you are somehow temporal. Like, okay, they're good for now, but once we get into this other section in church history, all that's going to go out the window. No, he says that both now and forever, so you're absolutely secure. There is no expiration date on these promises. Now, even the next one, powers, has to apply. Now, it's by itself. We don't know why. He just kind of inserts that. Powers. The word powers here is a word that means intrinsic power. So, so things that are just by nature powerful. It's even used of the very power of God. The very power of God itself cannot separate you from the love of God. Now that's sort of a mind-boggling concept. But God cannot separate you from God. God cannot break his own promises. Just meditate on that for a moment. God can't break his own promises. God cannot sin. God cannot lie. And God has said he will only do what is good for you and only do what he does because he loves you and therefore you're absolutely secure. So neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. Those are the next two. Nor height, nor depth. Height here means the lofty things, the intellectual things, the things that you don't know how to argue about because they're over your head. You ever use that phrase before? They're just, they're over your head. I I don't understand these things. People are coming at me with all these ideas and they're so intelligent and they're so sophisticated and, and they're so lofty. There are all these, um, these mystical ideas and I can't get them all sorted out and I get confused sometimes and I, and I find myself just kind of huddled up in the corner reading my Bible saying, I hope this is true, I hope this is true. These lofty things that seem over your head are not able to separate you from God's love. In fact, better off leave them where they are. Cut them loose, let them fly away. Like those helium-filled balloons during graduation that get stuck up here, up here in the rafters. Now, somebody was kind enough to come and get rid of those. Was that you, Kirk? Good job. All right. But you know what? Leave the lofty things where they are. Cut them loose, let them fly away, he says. Neither height nor depth. They're lofty things, and the depth means the deep things. What are the deep things? These these things that seem to be so profound, and they're so deep, and they're so um, challenging to my faith. He goes, those things aren't going to separate you either. Lofty and deep, it's the same idea, just one's going up and one's going down. He's not talking about actual height or actual depth, because obviously you can only go so high or so low, it's not going to separate you from God's love. These are intellectual things, things you wrestle with in your heart. And then he ends by saying nothing in all creation. So I love that. It's like, just in case I've missed anything, he says, oh, and by the way, anything in all creation, anything in the entire created universe 
cannot separate you from the love of God. Those are the facts. Tribulation and distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, that can't hurt you. Height, depth, death, life, things present, things to come, powers, none of that can separate you from God's love. Not even anything in all of creation can separate you. Those are the facts. And I think if you understand the facts and rehearse the facts and remember the facts, then you're not going to be led astray by all the deception that goes on in the world that tries to disconnect you from them. Our faith is rooted in truth. And so it's that truth that manifests itself here in the third point, and that is this faith. So we've seen the focus. It says at the beginning... Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's his question. Here are the facts. Basically, nothing, no matter how difficult it gets. And then finally, here at the very end, this is talking about your faith. That none of these things, end of verse 39, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the great promise. That's the great promise. Absolutely nothing. The greatest risk, as I said earlier, is being separated from God. That is the essence of divine punishment. The essence of divine punishment is being separated from God. And I know that because the opposite is how he describes the new heavens and the new earth and the glory of the resurrection, and that is by describing it as a time when he will dwell with us. He already dwells in us through the Holy Spirit, but he will dwell with us. There will be no separation ever. You know, this is what happened back in the garden. Adam and Eve, they were deceived. They sinned against God. And as a result, what did he do? He withheld his affection for them in the way that it was before. He withheld his presence. There was distance that was formed. That distance is something that to this day separates us on one level from God, but one day that will be entirely taken care of and he will be back to be with us on the new heavens and the new earth in a resurrected body forever and ever, his presence beside us. No need for a temple. No need for something to go to that reminds us of his presence. No need to go somewhere because the Ark of the Covenant was a place where he allowed his presence to dwell. All of that is going to be gone. There will be no need for a temple because he will be there. He will indwell everything and we will have the joy of his presence forever and ever. Nothing will separate us. The gospel is God's love through Christ. And that love through Christ is what makes it possible for us to be secured and never separated. He is the beloved of God. I love how he is described by the Father in Mark chapter 9, verse 7. The disciples are up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And God allows them to get a glimpse of, of, of Christ's glory. And then he says from heaven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. My beloved son. The very son who receives the love of God is the son who gives access the love of God forever through the gospel. He is the one who experienced the forsaking of God so that we would be adopted as sons and never be forsaken. Now that is what anchors our hope. It's what anchors our trust. Now it's challenging sometimes to live that out because 
We see ourselves wrestling constantly with those very facts, those very forces, those very natural um, temptations that overtake us sometimes. And what I want to encourage you with today is that um, there is nothing in your own strength that you can do to obey God's law perfectly or to satisfy Him or to make Him love you more. If that's something that you're wrestling with, even today you've come in here thinking, another bad week, you know, another week of me failing, another week of me faltering, another week of God having to discipline me because I'm such a bad Christian and, and, and he must not even love me very much. I'm, I'm going to come to church though and, and maybe that'll help us get restored, you know, maybe that'll earn me some points with him. If that's your mindset, I want to rescue you from that today. I want to do that by reading a poem to you. It's actually um, a song that was, uh, was written by William Cooper. Uh, William Cooper was a church member with uh, John Newton in Olney. Uh, he was somebody who battled mental illness and was often suicidal. And they would help one another by getting together every week and encouraging one another. And the reason for the gathering became an opportunity just to write a, a song every week. This is where uh, Newton ended up writing Amazing Grace, as a matter of fact, during these weekly songwriting sessions that were meant to kind of be therapy for William Cooper. But one week, he came in with this song, and um, we don't sing it anymore. I've heard a version of it that I really like. Um, but I didn't think I needed to teach you a new song this morning. I'll just read the words. You may be familiar with this, but I, I really find it helpful. It's called Love Constrained to Obedience. Listen to these words and tell me if you can relate. Love constrained to obedience. No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has, what strength she has, she misapplies for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey but toiled without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then, the light turns on, then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. By the Son's transforming work in my heart, now, obeying him is not a chore. It's not a burden and a weight. It's not something I toil under and I'm crushed by. Obeying him is a joy. Hating sin is natural. I know that I don't earn his favor by checking all the boxes. I'm not going to earn any crowns. I'm not going to get little jewels and ribbons down the road. All of that it distorts the perspective of the love of God and his relationship to his children. No, it's all an internal desire that comes from him. Freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. What shall I do was then the word, that I may worthier grow. What shall I render to the Lord is my inquiry now. And it's this, to see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear His pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. If you are... The kind of person who would say with him, how long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress, then I have some wonderful news for you this morning. Because we're going to take a few moments now to celebrate the Lord's Supper. 
And that was the moment where Jesus revealed to his disciples that there would be no more any toil or burden under the law, but that it had been completely and perfectly fulfilled in the new covenant through his death, burial, and resurrection, and that it would be made, offered to them to receive because they believe and have their faith in him. So we're going to celebrate that right now. I'm going to pray for us, and then afterward I'll ask our ushers to help distribute any elements if you are missing one, and we'll also welcome our children uh, back in to join us for the Lord's Supper. So let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for your truth. Thank you that there will be no accusation ever brought against us. There will be no punishment exacted towards us, and there will be no separation endured by us because your love sent your Son You loved us in that way. You didn't just love us so much you sent him. You loved us in that way that you sent your son. So that all who believe in him will not perish because the accusations are thrown out. The punishment's already been paid. And the loving father will never be separated from his adopted children forever and ever. That's what we celebrate today as we remember your death and burial, resurrection in this communion remembrance. I pray now as we prepare our hearts to receive it that you would remind us of these gospel truths. In your name we pray. Amen.